Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from Texas. His name is Chris Bentley, and he just published a book. came out April 6, 2022. title of the book is Burning Bellatorum, the story of a $40 million fraud and its priceless lessons for investors and entrepreneurs. Really fascinating book. A lot of these events happened very recently, right leading up right before the pandemic. And uh, he's written this book to advise people and how to watch out for um, circumstances where there may be fraud involved. So he can talk more about that. So Chris Bentley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, um, William. I appreciate it. And uh, it's an honor to be here. Awesome. Well, for people who may not have heard your name, I think this is your first book. Can you talk about your background? You've done a lot, had military service. And can you kind of talk about your background and what led you up to putting together Bellatorum and what the consequences of that uh, business uh, that you created? What happened? Yeah, I um, so I grew up in Texas and then I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, when I right after I graduated high, high school in 1999 and um, served about 14 and a half years did six tours of duty overseas in uh, support of the global war on terrorism. So that was several tours to Iraq, several tours to Afghanistan, and then a couple of other, you know, a few other countries around the world. Um, and then I got medically discharged in on December 30th of 2013 and didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I thought I was going to be a lifer in the Marine Corps. So I moved back to Texas and got into the oil and gas industry as what we call a landman, which is um, short for petroleum land manager. That's basically like real estate for the oil and gas industry. We acquire uh, assets, leases, land, you know, land assets, um, mineral rights, easements, things like that. Um, and so I, I really cut my teeth in the industry in 2014, 2015 oil and gas industry went downhill in 2015. I got laid off a few days before Christmas in 2015. And so in early 2016, I started my own company um, called Bellatorum Resources, hence the name of the title, Burning Bellatorum. Uh, it was a, you know, a wildly successful business in its first few years. We grew rapidly from a kitchen table startup to having an office and at our height, um, 21 employees and about $40 million of assets under management between debt and equity. And, um, and, you know, you know, hence the title of the book, I burned it Can all you, down. Right. You've, so you've written it all down. Can you explain why you chose the name Bellatorum and what the mechanics of it was to be kind of a right of way agent land negotiator? What you had to do and what what differentiated you from the competition? Yeah, so Bellatorum is the is a Latin uh, the plural form of the Latin root word Bellator, which means warrior soldier, and so Bellatorum resources. You know what I, um, you know, kind of the the ethos of the company was all military veterans. So I tried to hire veterans whenever possible, and. Um, I mean, almost all of our employees were veterans. I might have had one or two that weren't throughout the the history of the company, but um, you know, we we had speed, definitely a good story, you know, and and professionalism. But the 
I think um, to give the audience a little that may not be familiar with landmen and right of way uh, land negotiators, it's, you know, we go out and we literally deal with the people who own the property and try to negotiate contracts on behalf of the oil and gas industry. So for example, if, uh, if they're going to build a pipeline and you own land and, and they need to build, you know, run the pipeline through your land, somebody like me would come knock on your door and try to get an agreement, you know, pay, pay a fee to use, you know, to use your land to build a pipeline or to take oil out of the ground, et cetera. You know, so there's a, that's, that's kind of a really oversimplified explanation, but you know, that's, that's what it is in essence. And so when I started my own company in 2016, we focused on mineral rights and, uh, and just, you know, getting oil and gas royalties, which it's a unique asset class to the United States. Um, so, private citizens can own the rights to the natural resources under the ground. And so we refer to those um, landowners as royalty owners or mineral rights owners. And they're usually the ones that get a royalty check in the mail every month. So for example, let's say Exxon drilled a well on your land and you were the mineral rights owner as well, and not just the surface owner, then they, you know, they'd uh, negotiate a deal with you and they pay you a royalty. Let's call it 25%. So literally top line revenue, every barrel of oil that comes out of the ground, you'd be getting 25% payment of whatever that market rate was. So um, we were trying to acquire those assets and then flip them, which we did very successfully in our first few years. And then, um, you know, things started to fall apart. As You said you had 60% annualized returns, right? Which is really significant when like investors are just looking for 10% a year or something. Right. And I think... Um, you know, that probably had a lot to do with, with kind of my, some of, you know, the influence of my mindset later on, but yes, we had legitimate 60% annualized returns net to investors in 2018 and 2017. Um, and that's what kind of got the word out. And that's how we were able to scale from so small to such a large number of investors and in capital so quickly is because we'd really performed very well in 2017 and 2018. And this is all above board. You know, everybody got their money back, not a Ponzi scheme or anything like that. We we sold the assets, distributed the money, took our share of the profits, gave the investors their principal and their profits back. And then everybody re-upped in 2019 and brought their friends. And, you know, I went and got new investors from New York and Miami and other around the around the country. And, you know, we went from Basically, in 2017, the first time I managed other people's money, my first single investor gave me, I think, 35K. So in and that was in March or April of 2017. So I went from in let's call it April of 2017, one investor, thirty-five thousand dollars to January of 2019, a hundred investors and twenty-two point seven million. And then I added more in 2019, but Things started to go south in 2019, and that's uh, you know that's why I'm sitting here with you today, William. Right. So that's what led to the information in the book. And can you kind of talk like the the issue was kind of for you was kind of scaling, getting bigger. You have an MBA from Rice, great school, and you can you talk about how the investment fund worked, how it was supposed to work. People would invest, but then there was a mandated payout at the end of each year, right? 
Well, yeah. So what it is, it's a it's a lockup period. So with alternative investments, a lot of times it's illiquid. So it's not like when you invest in stocks, you can push a button, sell your assets and get your money back. Right. So th this is illiquid. It's real property like real estate. So I would take investors money and go buy properties. And then I'm my you know, the goal was to flip them for a profit and then share in the profits with the investors, right? That's the simple model of it is, is to um, basically buy assets and flip them for a profit and then share in the profits with the investors. Um, right. So what happened, you know, is we bought properties in 2019, but I think it, you know, not to bore your audience with too much technical detail, but there's a lot of work that like a lot of research and work that goes into finding these mineral rights assets. It's a very uh, niche asset class. There's a lot of information asymmetry and a lot of just a lot of, um, you know, nuance to this, to finding these deals. Well, we had done really well again in 2017 and 2018, as I mentioned, but the work that goes into preparing that, that deal flow to finding those deals, I neglected that in 2018 prepare, while I was out raising the money for the 2019 fund. I did. I neglected to kind of lead that part of the operation. And so when I got all this money, this new money, new fund, new investors in 2019, I didn't have the deal flow that I was used to getting like in 2018. So what I started to do is, you know, first we tried to fix it and say, what happened? We, you know, we thought we figured it out. And I talk about this in the book and I was just on the, a podcast the other day about how, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you really need to focus on your operations and your deal flow generation. Um, whatever that is, however you make money, make sure that's squared away before you go scaling and bringing on new capital. But um, long story short, started buying deals like overpriced bad deals just for the sake of putting the money to work to stay relevant you know in the industry to you know a lot of a lot of things were influencing that but then um the industry started to take a downturn again which happens in oil and gas it's very cyclical so uh this is before covid by the way it didn't it didn't crash in 2019 but it started to go downhill there were some other things happening in the industry and um and you know the uh so the like, business is changing but your your funds grew substantially like you had you know a fund that was a thousand times bigger than your earlier fund right so you're getting concurrent investment funds right i forgot what you called them it was bpi blm yeah Central. so so look in 2018 there we liquidated all those assets so when you know, fast forward to January of 2019, completely fresh start, start, just cash in the bank, no assets. We, you know, totally above board, clean slate, start over, good track record. But what happens is I put all that money to work and not, not in a great way, right? As I mentioned, that 22.7, well, then I go back to investors and raise another 6 million to, to buy some more assets. And that's when I start, you know, doing committing fraud basically to try to survive. So uh, the management fee was not enough to cover the overhead. So what I did when I raised the uh, the next six million dollars 
was say, hey, I'm going to put, you know, $6 million to work into assets. But what I really did was put $5.6 million to work into assets. Again, bad deals too. But um, I took $400,000 and put it in the company to pay payroll, mortgage, you know, the the building, the office mortgage and all that. And um, so... And in the very beginning of this whole thing, and I don't think you're alone in this in kind of corporate situations. You were just trying to keep it going. You had you justified it, I think. Can you talk about how you justified doing that? Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to make it clear right now, William. I'm not trying to justify what I did at all because I still, at the end of the day, I lied, I I stole, I committed fraud. Um, and I did what was wrong. I just, I want people to understand that my motivation was um, to, to keep the business afloat. I, it's not like I was out, you know, hiring uh, prostitutes and doing drugs and partying it up and driving fancy Enron. cars and whatnot. So, um, but, but yeah, the, um, so, so I, um, you know, I'm going it you know, fast forward, I'm doing this type of fraud to keep the business afloat. Right. And then COVID comes. Um, well, let me, let me take that back. I, uh, people all often ask, well, how'd you lose everything if you had real assets? Well, I took on some debt and I defrauded the lender as well by lying about, you know, the, the balance sheet, how it made the company look like it was doing better than it was so that the lender would give us a loan. So, but as with most loans, they want collateral, right? So I put the assets, the fund assets up as collateral to get this $6 million loan. I went and bought some more assets, but I also used the money from the lender uh, to cover more overhead and keep the business looking like everything was great. You know, I was out trying to raise more money. You know, I figured I could just weather the storm of COVID. Well, I got that loan in December of 2019 Fast forward to January, mid-January or early February of 2020. Um, and here we are, you know, yeah. COVID comes. The whole world and, changed, right? Yeah. And so after that, it was just a, a dumpster fire, you know, and I was just, I kept digging myself into a hole thinking, hey, COVID can't last forever. I'm, and so I kept committing fraud and fraud at like, you know, just trying to keep the lights on. Um, I levered my own house. I, I lost all my, my personal stuff too, where you see me sitting right now is in my, uh, father-in-law's house. Um, you know, and I, I, I talk about that in the book, but I, I put everything on the line, not just my investors money, but my own and my own livelihood. And, um, you know, but here we are today and, uh, I'm awaiting charges. And I, I think the, the purpose of the book though, I want to, put this out there real quick, William, and then, you know, put the ball back in your court. But I wrote this book for two reasons. One, as a way to start to make restitution. I haven't been mandated restitution or charged yet. The, the FBI was not on to me. Nobody was on to me. As it, the lenders had an idea, but nobody was, there was no investigation. Nobody had turned me in or anything like that. I went and turned myself in because my conscience got the best of me. But I thought in the meantime, I could write this book start to, you know, assuming it sells well, start to make restitution to investors. But also I think there's some really valuable lessons in here for investors and entrepreneurs and, and just business leaders, you know, and I think they can learn from the story. I think you're right. I think you're pretty rare. I can't think of anybody else who had the courage to put together a book like this, 
talking about some of the problems they came in. And I think some of the themes in the book, I think, are important. It was the psychology, the self-justification. And you talk about the psychology of how this can happen, right? You talk about those models. I forgot. It was. Yeah. Um, so there, there, yeah. So there's there's um, a lot of uh, there, there's a few different models. There's the fraud triangle, which the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners tends to use as their main, um, you know, their main model. And it's basically just talks about how, you know, there's motivation, opportunity and, you know, the um, and then like a, you know, a, a weakness in the system, basically, that you can exploit. And that that's true. I mean, we could go we could talk for hours about the different um, fraud models and the mindset. But I think to to just summarize it, you know, there's whether your motivations are, are good or bad or whatever, you know, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Right. You you have a motivation. Then you look for the opportunity, which is is there money there is there a way for um you know um is there a way for you to get that money and then if there is how do you you know how do you keep it from people so you don't get caught you know and that's um that's what you go down into and that's that's what I did i mean i i built these silos a lot of people were like how'd you how'd you um keep it for anybody from knowing. And I basically siloed information. I kept, you know, I, I would send fake documents to this department and then a different set to this department and made it to where nobody would, would ever question anything. Everything seemed above board and legit to the various parties we dealt with. And, um, you know, and it got to be, it got to a point to where every single minute of every day, William, I had to tell a lie or smile in somebody's face. I mean, it got to the point to where even, you know, you think something as simple as, Hey, how's your day going, Chris? Uh, you know, you're you got to lie and say, Oh, it's great. You know, and really I just came out of my office and, you know, forged a document and, and doctored some, some financial statements. And then I got to walk out and look somebody in the eye and say, Oh yeah, Hey, things are great. You know? And, and, you know, it's, it's pretty ironic, you know, the core values of our company were integrity was the first one, professionalism and excellence that, you know, is integrity, professionalism, excellence. It was written on the walls and, and all this. And, you know, after I'd shut down the company, I'm looking at it. I was like, man, what a freaking hypocrite, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there living this lie. And I think walking by that every day in my office had a lot to do with it. Just digging on me, you know, <laughs> And you had you kind of used your model as a lot of your military experience too, right? Like you talk about this guy Jocko Willink and uh, Mathis. So you kind of had, I mean, it was the theme within your, and you also had a lot of accolades, right? Weren't you written up in a couple of business magazines in Texas? So you kind of had a. Did you feel like you had to uphold an image? Yeah, I mean that was a big part of it, you know. And when you're raising capital for as an entrepreneur you know, things need to look good. Um, you know, at least I thought so. We were such a young company. I don't think I could have gone out attracting new capital and, and, you know, um, help for the business if, if things look bad or if I told the truth about the, um, 
about the financial state we were in or the bad investments I had made earlier in 2019. So, you know, hindsight being 2020, I should have just either paused or shut down the company in January of 2019 when I realized that I had some internal challenges. Um, you know, and I talk about that in the book, but, you know, to your point about the military stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think a good segue into the military mindset, one thing that can be, you know, counterproductive at times is this, you know, failure is not an option mentality or zero defect mentality, as we called it in the, in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, and, and when you, when you have to win at all costs, or at least you, you believe that it can be, it can cloud your judgment, I think. And I, now I think one of my biggest lessons to take away from this for myself and that I, you know, urge other people to adopt is that failure is an option, it, you know, and it's an, it's an event that, you know, in a, in a long journey that, that can, it's not final, you know, and, and I think now I understand that, but I think, in you know, a lot of people, not just military folks, but a lot of people, you know, it sounds good. It's a catchphrase, right? Failure is not an option. Raw, 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 get up and, you know, but it is an option. If things are bad and, and continuing, you know, cause if, if, if failure, you, you need to fail gracefully, I guess, rather than like I did burning everything down um, and just creating such a disaster when I could have had a, a much softer landing with less harm done uh, had I accepted failure earlier. If you accepted maybe the business circumstances weren't right, you could have probably closed up the fund and returned something back and just say, we can't handle it. Right. Or this just isn't a good business climate. So you're in a way your great successes kind of led to what happened in a way, in an odd way, because it set the psychology for building upon that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think so. I mean, look, there's there's so much, you know, there's so many things that go into your mindset, right? Like, especially in the early days of a company, you, um, you know, you you've got employees to take care of, you've got, uh, you, you know, your image to the public, you've got investors, you've got your business model, your customers. You know, there's a lot of people to please. And, um, so I, I think there's just so many influences that, uh, that go into your mindset. I mean, I know that's not a, a direct answer, but, um, it, it's definitely complicated. I mean, I, I think I lay it out pretty, you know, pretty well in the book. I don't know how far you got. I know you were saying you, you did, you just received I, it and didn't have a chance to get through well, it no, all. I, I got through, I mean, I, I, I scanned maybe the latter chapters. I know, I understand your background. The real kind of moment of truth for you, and you start the book with that, was April 9th, 2021, right? Yes. Can you talk about writing that letter and what that letter said? Yeah. So um, I basically sent an email out to all my investors, which was normal. You know, I, I normally did this the first Friday of every month, um, and things were getting pretty, you know, pretty bad. And I did not send the, the investor update the previous Friday, which I was supposed to. But I told the investors, hey, 
I'm sorry. Some, I'm having some trouble, some challenges, some personal things. I need to, I'll send out the investor update the following week. Well, the reason I said that is because I already was thinking about turning myself in and I was basically trying to figure out how to turn myself in. There's no, you know, you don't call 911 when you're, uh, uh, have committed fraud. And I mean, who, who, you know, you don't really know who to talk to. So I, I did some digging, try to figure it out. And finally I, I got in touch with a lawyer that knew what I needed to do. He set up a meeting with the FBI and the department of justice and so once I had all that locked down and I had, you know, the the meeting set, I sent out that an email to my investors basically coming clean about everything and, um, you know, and said, hey, you know, I'm sorry, but I've lost everything. And, uh, you know, there's there's not much left in the way of capital or assets and um, I'll do whatever I can to help. But I'm also turning myself in. At that time, I thought, you know, I thought for sure they would uh, arrest me and I'd be in jail. But, you know, they just met with me. They took all the details. And a few days later, they came to my office and uh, took, you know, a bunch of computers and and evidence, if you will, to, to corroborate my, you know, to, to I guess basically to make sure I was telling them the truth. I've had a few meetings over the past year and uh, I'm still waiting for for charges. But um yeah. That and so, question, William? right. I mean, I wish you the best. I wish you the best of luck and hopefully everything kind of, you can come with the softer landing. I don't know what happened, but you kind of go into these warning signs. You talk about, it's not just how to avoid fraud, but about the investor's sensibilities, right? So their philosophy as well is like, sometimes these deals might be too good to be true, right? Yeah, I mean, look, our I, I, I talk a lot about structure, right? So I think um, my warning to investors is, you know, you need to read the documents. And I think a lot of people did not read the documents in my case, right? And, and I just, you know, a lot of these documents you get, they're called private placement memorandums. Um, and limited partnership agreements when you do this, when you do a limited partnership structure, right? And it's alternative investment, you have a general partner and you have your limited partners who are the investors. Well, a lot of times there are these off the shelf boilerplate documents that give a lot of authority to the investment manager, such as myself. And, um, and, you know, I had the, I had the ability to do what I did. Let's just put it that way. So, um, if you read the documents and you see like, wait, there's no, there's no reporting requirements. There's no oversight board. You can request those things as an investor, you know? And I actually, I talk about investors looking for that stuff in the structure, but I also talk to entrepreneurs like, Hey, when you're creating your company, you need to put these boundaries on yourself because, Everybody wants to do things, you know, I should say most people want to do things above board and have a good business that, that, you know, they operate with, you know, within the, the color inside the line, so to speak, and they just do everything right and make money the, the good old fashioned way, right? Well, when things go south and you don't have a lot of capital in the bank, a long runway, especially when you're a new company, you may be tempted to do things in a certain way, but if you put away 
if you put these boundaries on yourself in your operating documents up front, then you can create a way for yourself to handle these situations too, to where, okay, here's what you do in case of a deal's gone bad and you need to, you know, it's basically like in case of emergency break glass, right? Like put that in your operating documents, right? And and I didn't have that. And again, I, I mean, hindsight's always 2020 for me, right? But I think it can be close to 2020 for folks that read this book. They can say, all right, this is what I should do if I'm starting a company or here's what I should do if I'm investing in a new company that, um, you know, where I, I'm, I've given a new entrepreneur money to manage and invest on my behalf. Right. And so you advise like, you know, where are you putting your money? Uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket, things like that. Can you talk about this? Like, what's the what are the signs of fraud that people should look out for? You know, um, the, there's there's the signs would vary, right? But I think having an audit in uh, having audits done independently, but and and unscheduled, right? So for the way it typically works now with auditors is it's all scheduled. They come in, you know, like so. So the firm has a time to get ready for it. But I think doing independent audits um, unscheduled randomly definitely are a way to prevent it. Um, if things seem like they're not right, something starts to deviate from the norm. The manager starts to, uh, you know, act different, then question it. Don't be scared. It's your money. You know, I think a lot of investors didn't want to disrespect me, I, you know, and they probably... They might have had concerns or questions to ask me, but I didn't have a lot of people beating down my door. I had a few, you know, but I didn't have a lot saying, hey, what's going on here? You know, I, I will say going through this during COVID and the pandemic uh, probably made people a little more forgiving of me. So they they thought, oh, he's probably he's not committing fraud. He's just it's just a bad time. Right. And, and that was partially true, but I was committing fraud to try to survive the bad time and digging digging a deeper hole. And um, and so I just think, again, the, the random audit, show up. It's If it's your money, have the right to go in and kick the tires whenever you want. Um, you know, and, and I would say that a manager should have the transparency for their investors and allow them to do that. Right. It reminds me of kind of Theranos, you know, that Theranos situation where that girl, she kept that fraud, you know, going for a long time. Huge amount of money, too. Like, Yeah, I mean, you know, I I would be lying if I said I didn't watch all these since this has gone down. Like, I, I've watched all these different fraud stories, and I try to tell myself, like, oh, I'm not like her or I'm not like that guy. I didn't do, you know, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right? Like I still lie, it, like I lost people's money and I lied about it and I and I broke the law to do it. Um I I and I think it's similar. Like, you know, I hate to say it. I, I really hate to say it because I mean I really had a legitimate business at first, and I don't I don't think she ever did. And that's right. the only difference, right? That's the only difference. The way, 
at least I, you know, I watched the the Netflix series or whatever Hulu, whatever it was on. I, I watched that that series about Theranos, and um, you know, the way they portray her going and talking to investors, hey, it's going to be okay. I need more money. You know, that's very similar to me going and talk. Like when I got the loan for six million or six point six million dollars from the lender, I was very like I wooed them with the my team in the office and I like, look how awesome we are. And I knew that things were not going well. Um, you know, I think, and again, I think the only difference was, is she was, she never had a viable business. She didn't have a viable thing. It was ever. black box something. Yeah. yeah. I think she was trying to make it a business. I think that was her gamble is that she was going to try to, yeah. It, yeah. You know, and you try to get the money and then make a business, but, Absolutely. Like, I, I think she genuinely wanted to have a legitimate business. I don't think she I don't think her whole goal was like to just, you know, steal people's money and live the high life and never, you know, I think she really wanted to create that thing, but she never had it. But it, it like I was saying that the relevance or, or the relation, the correlation to the Bellatorum story is I did the same thing. I went and talked to investors and I, t I lied to them about the state of the company, you know. Uh, right, and that's a warning. That's part of your book is the warning to future investors to watch out for this. You talk about getting all the paperwork too, right? Like you really not the words, but it's informational asymmetry, right? If you trust the individual, like they trusted her instead of kind of looking at looking under the hood, so to speak, right? Yeah. So, so the it, there's the uh, trust but verify, right? Like uh, you you've got to you got to do that. And I think that's people trusted me so much. They trusted her so much that, uh, that, um, you know, they, that was they, the standard, right? Yeah. They the didn't, they didn't think it was necessary to go verify. And, um, so anyway, um, there's a, there's question, a question here from, yeah. Can you up. answer that question from gameplay? Gameplay says, were there any times clients or investors had a sense he was doing something shady? Yeah. I, I think, um, I only had one guy, uh, one investor confront me and then the lender uh, that, you know, the which I guess is technically a type of investor because it wasn't a bank per se. It was a it was a private lender, um, the six point six million dollar loan. They started to question me a lot. Um, but again, I just, you know, kept telling lies, kicking the can down the road, forging documents, you know, giving bad information, you know, or false information to, to try to keep them at bay. And, uh, just got to a point to where I couldn't do it anymore. Right. They, people were starting to get suspicious at the end, right? I think you write that in the book. Like they were starting to get, you were getting more calls. There was more hands-on approach, right? Yeah. And what, uh, I mean, we're at about 35 minutes here, Chris, what would you like to add? Or is there anything I missed before we wrap up the interview? I mean, there's a lot more in this book. You have eight chapters. We probably only covered half of it. You can get it in, um, softback, hardback, right. Or Kindle. Yep. And the audio book is being recorded as we speak. Um, it should be ready and available on audible within a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, but yeah, it's self-published. It's all through Amazon. So again, can Kindle and then Amazon.com and then um, it will be on Audible. So, gotcha. And it has 11 star, 11 for your first book, 11 five-star reviews. 
it's all solid yellow. But is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed or how do you want to wrap up uh, this discussion? You know, I, I just, I appreciate you having me on. I hope that, um, you know, investors will, will give, will not, you know, look at my story and say, Oh, I'm not investing with, uh, with, you know, I'm not trusting veterans or, or guys with alternative investments or new entrepreneurs, you know, with risk comes reward and, and you do have to be willing to take some risk the, when you invest, but, um, just make sure that you have the boundaries in place and the oversight in place, um, you know, to, uh, so that when you do invest, you have the the means and the mechanisms in place to, to go protect your money and, and make sure that your man, your, you know, investment manager doesn't have the ability to, to go astray. Um, but, and then for the managers out there, like I said before, I just want to reiterate, William, failure is an option. You know, it's just how you how you handle the failure and how you move forward beyond it. And uh, that would be the biggest, you know, takeaway I would I would add for entrepreneurs and managers out there. Right. And and I think that you know, this, you know, it starts very small. It becomes a, an avalanche of things. But I've, I've seen a lot of these different stories. It just started with one. Like, I'm just going to fudge this little paper here. I mean, you can explain the entire mortgage crisis like that. Like all those documents were fake. After a while, it just became lawless, like uh, mortgage documentation. They never really got caught. Not many people. I think the, the only a couple people went to jail over this massive kind of document fraud where people were deliberately lying to make money and stuff like that and deceiving everybody else. But So it's not unusual. But uh, where's the best place to reach you, Chris? Do you have social media? Or yeah, you know, I, I am, I'm very active on LinkedIn, um, and I, I sent you a um, a link to my LinkedIn profile. That's the main uh, social media that I use. And then, you know, as I said, um, the book is available on Amazon, but I am very, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn and, and check it daily and, and answer messages on there and uh, would love to hear from your viewers and listeners. Great. And I will put that link in the show notes so people can check that out. The link, the link to your LinkedIn. And again, the author's name is Chris Bentley. Title of the book is Burning Bellatorum, the story of a $40 million fraud and its priceless lessons for investors and entrepreneurs, just published April 6, 2022. So thank you very much for sharing your story, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, William. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Take Stay care. there. Stay there. Stay